0: there's books in business school, but they're not really designed for small business owners. And then the other insight is, small business owners are so smart. They've already learned all these lessons. Like what if we could put it all together, all the things that people have learned and share it so that the people who are getting started don't have to keep reinventing the wheel, that they have some place that they could go to hear about some of these things. And there was really nothing else that was like it that existed.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Are you wearing GGBs in a blue blazer? Is that what you're rocking?
0: Yeah. I have shoes.
1: That's very hip. In my bag. Like those are awesome.
0: Thank you. But I wore heels for the first time all day yesterday and then I have a blister because I'm out of practice. And so I was like, I got to wear these. My feet are hurting.
1: Unless you feel better in them, I don't think you should wear heels. They're, I imagine, incredibly uncomfortable.
0: I really love shoes.
1: (laughs) I'm barking up the wrong tree.
0: I really love shoes. I'm really short. And so I... So
1: you feel good in the heels.
0: I do, but I'm out of practice because of COVID. I used to wear heels every day. Your
1: feet are so unaccustomed to them.
0: They are. Yeah. I've been wearing slippers for two years. (laughs) And so yesterday, I'm like... we were I,
1: like, Lauren, what the hell is going yeah, on?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I literally... In my, it was just at my old desk yesterday, and my shoe rack is behind my desk because I used to have at least 20 pairs of heels in the office and just waiting there.
1: Okay, but was there some feeling that you had when you walked to the shoe rack and you're like, oh, we're back. It's on. It
0: was empty, though. So I was like, I'm at my desk. You got oh, rid of them. No, no,
1: like where all your shoes are. When yeah, you go to your yeah, shoes yeah. that you haven't even...
0: I mean, it was like a joke for everyone. Like, look at all the shoes that she has. She's got all these shoes here. And and you're
1: a shoe person. Yeah, I'm a shoe person. Yeah, so if you're anything like my mother, you have like at least 100 pairs of shoes and you wore less than five.
0: I don't have 100, but I definitely, I have quite a few of you.
1: Okay. Yeah. And you carried heels with you in your bag?
0: Yeah. I'm a New Yorker. I feel like this is what we do. Like after 9-11, I'm like, you never leave home without sneakers on.
1: Just in case.
0: Just in case. I had to walk home. From downtown Manhattan all the way to the Upper West Side that day. What so, do you
1: mean? You were downtown? Yeah. Where?
0: At Astor Place. I want to say it's like in the, in the village, basically, but right above Soho, basically.
1: How is that? Crazy. Where'd you have to walk home to?
0: All the way on the Upper West Side.
1: Oh, so it was like an hour, hour and a half walk.
0: I mean, I think it took longer than that.
1: Because nothing was, everything and was And because stopped.
0: it was so scary. but like you're was, not going
1: to get in the subway.
0: The subway's closed.
1: Everything just stopped.
0: Everything stopped. The only option was to walk. There was no phones, no cell phones.
1: What do you mean no cell phones?
0: Nothing would work. Nobody in my family got in touch with me that entire day. So they didn't know where I was all day. I was walking home.
1: Are you serious? Yeah. And your husband?
0: I did call him in the morning. And I said, he was in law school at the time. And I said, turn on the TV. A plane hit the World Trade Center. I was like, I just got out of the subway. And I'm seeing the World Trade Center on fire, and then we were standing on the roof of my office building when we saw the tower fall down, and I was like, I gotta get out of here. The and first one? Yeah.
1: You were standing on the roof? Yeah. You happened to be on the roof at that point? We
0: were watching, we were like, what is going on? Oh,
1: after the plane hit, yeah. you went after to the, the roof second because, plane, there, yeah. because there was a delay from when it hit to when the tower fell.
0: Yeah, there was a long delay. Not long, I mean, it was like at least an hour, not more.
1: What was going through your head?
0: so confused initially we were like what is happening and then it was like oh this is a terrorist attack and then there was like fighter jets over the city and the entire city shut down bridges tunnels subways everything nothing was running Phone people lines were like nothing. running up the street covered in dust and i with a coworker of mine we were like we got to walk home but every time a plane would fly overhead, like a fighter jet, we were like, oh my God, oh my God what's happening? And we were like taking cover under a building overhangs. And so it took us a while to get home.
1: Did you have kids at that point? No. I wonder how it would be to explain that to children. Imagine going home that night and you have kids at home. You can't even rationalize it to yourself.
0: I literally, after that, so our offices were closed. We couldn't go below that point in Manhattan for, I think, at least two weeks and I just would sit in front of the TV crying every day, waiting for them to find somebody. And <laughs> my husband, who was like, I was living with him at the time. He was like, you got to get out of the house. Are you kidding me? Yeah, That's pretty traumatic.
1: That's insane.
0: It's funny. Now I work with people who are obviously a, a lot younger than me. And they're like, what grade were you in in 9-11? And I was like, I was in the grade where I wasn't <laughs> in a grade anymore. What grade were you in? They're like second. I was like, you were in second grade.
1: Oh, man. Terrifying. Yeah. So scary. Yeah. All right,
0: but anyway, after that, Jeez. you don't leave home without
1: sneakers. Sneakers. Do you want another tea bag?
0: I have one. I drink. I'm very particular about. It. I drink tulsi tea. Oh. It's holy basil from India. It says on the packaging that it's um, stress relieving and magical.
1: Oh my! <laughs> you come with your own tea. You come with your own shoes. Yes,
0: I'm prepared for anything.
1: Wow. Well, good. I'm excited to have you. I'm excited that you're on this side of the country right now. Me I was too. in New York last week. It was on fire. I lived in Tribeca for four months during the end of last year. It was also on fire then. I miss it every day. And if it was up to me, I would live there.
0: You can't just live anywhere now?
1: No. Because think about it this way. At first I was a little bit disgruntled. And then I was like, okay, I get it. When I talk to startups, like our CEOs, and they're like, Juben, what do you think? Should we go all remote? It's getting really competitive to recruit people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, look, if I was starting a company, and it was less than 50 people, I would be in person. Now, would I choose San Francisco to be in person? Maybe, maybe not. But if it's a tiny, tiny team, and we're like trying to build something that's a Herculean effort, yeah. I would start it in person in an office. What I don't like is when everyone comes into the office then goes into the conference rooms, and we don't even see each, because <laughs> then you're like, well, what's the point? But yeah. generally speaking, yes, I'm in the office. Yep. Anyway, okay, I do all these intros the same way which is that I will read your background back to you, Mm -hmm. you tell me what I screw up, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. So you started at Emory, you got your BA in English and Journalism, then you went to Comscore, you were a product manager for three years, you went to Nielsen, spent a year there, then you went to AOL, you were at advertising.com, correct?
0: It was advertising.com that then got acquired by AOL.
1: Okay. So you are there for one year at Advertising.com. Four years. Four years. Well, okay, you were there for one year, and then it got acquired. That's what I was guessing. Okay, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And then it got acquired, and then you went to uh, Viacom, within Viacom MTV. You were the VP of Digital Research and Insights there for three years. Then things got really interesting for you. You went to Yahoo. Mm -hmm. You spent six years at Yahoo. Mm -hmm. This is when you moved from New York City to San Francisco before ultimately moving back to New York City, but nonetheless, this was your first move cross country. Yes. Correct? Yes. And uh, you were the VP of Global Strategic Insights and Research for six years. Then you were the VP of Strategic Media Planning and Insights for a year, right-ish?
0: Right-ish, yeah. I think it was probably around two to three years in the last role of doing all of the media planning, execution, and research, but. Roughly right. Yeah. Just
1: tell me I'm wrong. And then I think that is when you also made the definitive jump from B2B to B2C, where it seems like you were kind of straddling the line till that point, doing a little bit of both.
0: That's correct. It's also the point where I really made the leap from research and insights and strategy to marketing execution.
1: Okay, I don't know what the difference is, but you're going to have to tell me. Okay. Um, Then you started your own thing, LMW Consulting. I believe those are your initials. Correct. Okay, good. You did that for a little less than a year. Mm-hmm. Why'd you do that? Were you buying time? Were you looking for the next thing? Were you doing that while you are at business school? What was the impetus for doing that?
0: So, the impetus for doing that was that I wanted to get out of media and I was worried that my skill set wouldn't be applicable. So, I left Yahoo and I took just two months off just to recharge my battery, which was amazing. And then I thought, I don't know what I want to do next or if I want to go back into a corporate thing, but I don't want to be in media anymore. And so it was a test for myself, essentially, to consult with companies that were not media companies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just to make sure that I could do the things that I wanted to do at a company that wasn't a media company.
1: Got it. Then you get to Square. That's in 2017. Mm -hmm. And you do a year as the global growth strategy lead, actually reporting into the CRO, Then you've spent the last four-ish years as the CMO, head of marketing and comms for Square. Correct. You're also on the board of Emory and the Mobile Marketing Associates. Correct. Okay, I have some questions for you. Okay. Surprise. What was the dinner conversation like for Lauren? Where was it, in New York, on the suburbs?
0: I grew up in the suburbs of Philly. Yeah, okay. My dad was from New York. My mom grew up in Camden, New Jersey. And we lived in the suburbs of Philly and our dinner conversations were pretty normal. We had dinner as a family together every night, which is every night. Yeah. Except on the weekends. My parents went out every Saturday.
1: Oh, date night.
0: Yeah. Or just with friends. Oh. And we had a babysitter. But I would say otherwise, my mom was always cooking. Both my parents worked and it was pretty normal in our house.
1: I like that idea. Every Saturday, go to dinner. Yeah. Do you do that now?
0: Not every Saturday, but almost every Saturday or Friday, we go out.
1: And leave the kids. Yeah. I like the idea of creating some space. Yeah. It's like you got to re-earn your relationship. It's not
0: even just a date night. For me, it's just about socializing and having fun. And I think I work really hard all week and I just want to do something fun on the weekends.
1: So sometimes it's going with friends. Sometimes it's you and your husband. Yeah, Just go out, have a martini, enjoy yourself.
0: Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we did an 80s karaoke night with a group of friends. You're kidding. Yeah. In no, New I'm not York? kidding. In uh, <laughs> In the suburbs, New Jersey.
1: All right. Can I ask you a second layer question? Sure. I don't mean to get too personal. What's your favorite restaurant in New York City?
0: Right now, maybe Lola Taverna.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. In like Soho, going yeah. up to West Village area. Yeah. Okay.
0: I always want to go there. I just really love it. It's a
1: cool scene. Like the spot the is food cool. food
0: is so good, too.
1: Yeah. Have you been to Le Artusi? No. You should go there. Okay. Have you been to Raoul's?
0: No, but I wanna go there.
1: If you like red meat, the steak fruits there is unbelievable. Okay. All right, I'll send you my list, I have a list. So when I went to live there I got frustrated that New Yorkers are very foo-foo about their food and so all of the Yelp reviews that I kept going into, because I didn't know the city when I first moved there, they were all about things that felt very random and innocuous to me, like the service, the price. And don't get me wrong, those things matter. But the only thing that really matters to me is the food. Yeah. That's what I care about. Rebuilt a spreadsheet, zero to 10, decimals included. Went out to dinner every night, three months. I have a full list, so I'll send it to you.
0: That would be amazing.
1: So 9.4 is my highest score. It's Lear Artusi. Okay. If it's above a nine, it's like I'm going back a lot. And if I can get a reservation there, I'm in no matter what. If it's above an eight, I'll recommend it to my friends. If it's above a 7.5, I'll go, but a bit begrudgingly. And if it's below a 7.5, I'm not going again.
0: Okay. What's your favorite sushi restaurant in New York?
1: Oh, so this is kind of a cop-out answer, but you know sushi on Jones? There's a sushi spot where you're in and out in 40 minutes. You're in and out in like 35, 40 minutes. That's the whole point of the sushi place. I don't like... Putsing around when the meal's over. I'm also the guy, if you can't tell, I'm really impatient, where I don't wait for the check to be brought to me. I give my credit card to the waiter <laughs> because, God forbid, I have to wait five minutes in that exchange. Yeah. All the other things I could be doing with that time. So I, I like the efficiency. What's yours?
0: I like sugarfish. Okay. And I went there in LA. And then when I moved back to the East Coast and it was in New York, I was so happy.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's one in LA. I've had the one in LA. Yeah. But sugar fish, you have to eat it there. Does that make sense?
0: I don't think you do.
1: Oh, (laughs) oh, But the rice is warm, and they don't put other stuff in there. Yeah. If it's just warm rice and salmon or fish, then when you get it, one of the value props is already diluted down. It's not warm.
0: I've had takeout. Okay. And I really enjoyed it. Okay, all
1: right. The other thing about sugar fish, the instructions on the box, I think I'm too stupid to follow them. I don't know what sushi they're talking about and the corresponding sauce that's supposed to go with I it. I definitely
0: don't read the instructions. I'm
1: like, okay. Really, in all general, all on all anything all in all life.
0: God. It's probably one of my husband's biggest pet peeves <laughs> about me. He's like, you started to put that together? Did you read the instructions? No.
1: <laughs> I'm like, all right, human. come on, are you going to get this? Okay. You lived in Los Altos, right? Mm-hmm. We both grew up in Los Altos.
0: Well, I didn't grow up there.
1: You live there? Yeah. I lived in Los Altos. You lived in Los Altos. I grew up there. Yeah. I like the idea of you growing up in Los Altos. That makes me feel like we have more in common. I was told to ask you a few questions. Okay. Uh So I've talked to many people that both you said maybe I should talk to and that maybe you didn't ask me to go talk to. (laughs) I heard that you host extraordinarily elaborate Shabbat dinners on Fridays. Is that true?
0: I really like to cook. And I think I'm raised by a Jewish mother who also really likes to cook. And when you're raised by a Jewish mother, you can never have enough food. And so I think it's elaborate because of the amount of food that we have usually when I cook dinner. I always say more than anyone can come because I have food for 30, even if only four are going to be there. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of food and a lot of good food.
1: People say that you operate on a different calendar than the rest of us. Somehow time is manufactured in your world in a way that we cannot. I heard that on one given Saturday, you drove two kids to six different locations for basketball and lacrosse tournaments in between them during quarters, taking calls for what you needed to do. That is like superwoman stuff.
0: That sounds right, yeah.
1: Isn't that overwhelming? The idea of me this morning doing yoga while prepping, While packing my golf bag to then come here with my suitcase before I go on PTO, I almost collapsed. (laughs) You know, this is like 10 times that. I don't know.
0: I have a lot of energy. Yeah. And I like to be busy. And I also feel like during the week, I'm really busy with work. And so the weekend time is like kid time and family time. And so I, I don't know. You just do
1: it. Do you ever feel like you overload yourself? All the time. How do you un-overload yourself?
0: A couple of ways. I think sometimes like on Fridays when it's Shabbat, I'm in the East Coast and at five o'clock sometimes I'm just done. I'm done. The computer shut down and I do not go back to it. And then I like to have fun with my friends and with my family. And then I feel like I'm just recharging that way. I exercise too. That really helps a lot. And then every now and then on the weekends, I will sleep until like 1030.
1: Wow. Yeah is part of the reason why you feel overloaded because you put yourself in so many commitments. And then when you do that, then a lot of people also want things from you. Do you have a hard time saying no?
0: Yes, but I'm getting better as I get older. I think it's more that I wanna do a lot of things and I try to fit everything in in a day. And so the way that I schedule myself is a little nuts. My trainer comes, we work out from 10 to 11. At 11, my next call starts. So there's just like no time in between things, but I try to fit in a lot. So that's how it has to be for me.
1: I'm not trying to be a one-upper, but I schedule calls during my runs. So I will have calls, like if I'm catching up with people internally, obviously if it's a candidate or whatever, I'm not going to do that. If I have catch-ups with people, I'm on a run, I'm running down Marina Green, I'm on the phone, which is so obnoxious for everybody else. But that's
0: impressive because I can't really run and talk at the same time. You can,
1: you just haven't tried. (laughs) I promise you can. I promise you can.
0: I try to hold exercise time as me time though.
1: So I actually think I'm doing myself a disservice because I think that there is something sacred about that time. Yeah. You're present, you're focused, yeah. you're on one thing. You don't have to do 10 things at once. That's why I like to go to classes. Like this morning, I can't pick up my phone and yoga.
0: Yeah, I use my workout time as my me time, my focus time.
1: So you moved back to the East Coast, correct? Yes. During the pandemic. Yes. Are you stoked to be home?
0: Yeah, it was hard. I moved with a 13-year-old and a, an 11-year-old. And so for the 13-year-old, it was really hard. And we moved back during the pandemic. So it's hard, you know, people weren't really doing anything. But now we've gotten over that. And it's really nice to be back to see our family so much. So my sister and cousins and parents and in-laws all live really close. And I think that was the thing that during the pandemic that made me sad, which was It was supposed to be my son's bar mitzvah. It got canceled about five times. But the fact that we were thinking about doing a Zoom mitzvah, which is what everybody did, but no one from my family would be able to come. And then I decided, okay, I want to move back. I want to be closer to everyone. And because everybody was working remotely and Square was a work from home forever company, I thought it's now or never.
1: Super cool. I got to ask you, as you've had kids and moved into different places, have your priorities remained relatively the same from 15 years ago, Lauren? Or do you think they've dramatically changed?
0: I think they've changed. As my kids get older and as you know, I have kids, I think my priorities have shifted towards them and making sure I'm spending meaningful time with them and you're responsible for raising kids and putting them out into the world. And so, yeah, my priorities have changed a lot. And I think I'm just much more focused on family. And obviously I'm still focused on work and very driven at work, but I really try to have a good balance.
1: When you went to Yahoo and Mm -hmm. you moved across the country the first time, I think Marissa Mayer had just come in, which meant that a new CMO came to the company and you had a lot of ambitions for what you thought you could contribute and what the business could be. And your boss, correct me if I'm wrong, told you at the time, I agree, generally speaking, with most of the things you're saying. However, you got to come West. Is that right? Yeah. What ultimately made you do that?
0: There was a lot of things. It wasn't an immediate thing. So when the new CMO came in, who's Kathy Savitt, and I said, I have these ideas for the role that I think I could play. And she said she agreed, but wanted me to move. I said, well, let's have a trial period. Let's make sure we like each other. And this is going to be a good fit. I don't want to move my family across the country. Okay, and and three months from now, we're like, this is just not a good fit. Yeah. And that happens. Yeah. And so... I initially thought like six months, but I was still going to California at least two weeks out of the month during that time. And then sometimes it would be three weeks out of the month. So I think ultimately it was exhaustion. Mm -hmm. I would be traveling all the time and my kids were still really little at the time. I think I would usually get home around two o'clock in the morning on a Thursday night, Friday morning at like six in the morning, my husband would say, here are the kids. Oh, man. And so it was hard. It was hard for our family. And I think ultimately my husband grew up in New Jersey. There's a lot of stuff happening with him and just reevaluating his career choices. And we just decided we're never going to get this opportunity again. Maybe it's only a year, but why not go? And we didn't know a single person when we moved to California, but we thought it would be a good adventure.
1: Tell me if I'm wrong, but I can't imagine it's super easy to develop community in Los Altos. Maybe I'm wrong. How did that go down?
0: It's true. It was really hard at first. So we didn't know anybody. We had a few friends that introduced us to a few friends. And honestly, it was through our kids' school. So the first year my kids were in public school, which was not easy for us to find community there. Where'd I they think go? They went to Escondido okay, in Palo Alto. Yep. And then we switched them to a private school, to Hausner. And that's really where our community came from. And that was just the nicest, warmest group of people still where all of my friends in California are from today.
1: How hard was that? New boss, move across country, new city, not sure if you like it, with your husband, moving the kids. They probably have a lot of questions. Can't find a community. Leave your family, all your friends. Did you ever just lay in bed like, what do we do?
0: Not really, to be honest. Okay, I think that I was excited for what it could be. I'm a very optimistic person, so I always just thought, like, it just takes time, but we'll get there. And I think one of the things about California that people talk about but I think is underrated is that it's so nice out every day. And so every day I would wake up and I would think, God, it's so nice here. I can't believe we live here now. It's so nice. And I think just leading up to us moving to California as a family, we had had a really hard time, and so I think I just had a different perspective in terms of what was going on with our family that I was like, okay, I'm just like, everything is good, we're happy, we'll get through this.
1: What do you mean really hard time?
0: I would say 2012 was probably the worst year of my life. My husband was a lawyer and he was struggling with a lot of just mental health and substance abuse issues, so he ended up going to treatment, and in the same week that he left for treatment, my two-year-old son broke his leg, And then the next day, my dog had a spinal cord injury in our backyard and became paralyzed. (laughs) And so the summer of 2012 was literally the lowest and hardest point in my life. And so I think getting through that time, which was really hard, just gave me a totally new perspective. So moving to California where I was like, my husband's doing well, we're in a good place, our family is happy the paralyzed dog is here. Like we made it.
1: There's a new chapter.
0: New chapter. And finding friends seemed like something. I was like, we'll be able to do it. It just takes time. But after getting through 2012, I thought "Hmm, we could do anything.
1: Day your husband leaves, then son breaks his leg. The next day. The next day. Then that afternoon. The next day, the dog. Okay. So the day of the dog that night, what are you thinking about when you're laying in bed there? How hard was that?
0: I literally think that was the lowest, hardest point of my life. I remember thinking, why? Why would all of these things happen in one time to one person? What did I ever do to deserve this? And I was just beside myself. I really didn't know, and obviously such a hard time. And I feel really lucky looking back on it. I had a boss that I could really trust and a team. I mean, I had to tell people Not a lot of people, but I had to tell people really close to me and people that I worked with because I obviously needed some time where I wasn't at work and it was just really hard and I felt like it was easier for me just to say, this is what's going on and I need a little help and support and people were very supportive.
1: Wow. Did you go into problem solving mode after that? How did that manifest for you?
0: I honestly think I went into survival mode. Yeah which is like, how am I gonna do this right now? Just what was happening with my husband alone was really traumatic. And then I would say all the other things, like I wasn't even going into plan or what's next mode. I was literally like-
1: Yeah, just the husband thing, you're already making incredible amounts of contingency plans. What are the things that I need to do when I lose this part of my support system around a dog and a kid and all these other things?
0: And I remember when the vet was saying that the dog The dog lived in a hydrotherapy facility to learn how to rewalk, And they said, you have to visit him every day. (laughs) And it was 20 minutes away. And I was like, my husband's away.
1: How long was he away for? Four months. Okay.
0: There's the kid with a broken leg who was about to start camp. And fortunately my mother-in-law worked at the preschool and everything was fine and he went to camp, but I, and I'm working, I have a job, I have a team. It's 2012. It's the year Yahoo has five new CEOs. And so it's not like I'm just working. I'm having to really prove myself at work too.
1: That's insane. Yahoo had five new CEOs in a year? Mm -hmm. Are you serious?
0: Yeah. That ended with Marissa coming in. like She was the final one, but that was a crazy year at Yahoo.
1: This is kind of a weird question, but did you talk to your son about what was happening? I'm not a parent, But I would imagine myself having a very difficult time straddling the line between being strong, but also not being able to fake it very well.
0: Yeah, my kids were really little at that time, maybe three and five. So there was
1: no context to fake it, it was fine.
0: I think it was telling them this is what's going on and daddy's going away, here's the things that he's gonna work on and we would go visit him. And so it was really, really hard for them. And there are times when they would cry and I would cry too.
1: Yeah. So California was a little bit of a sunnier pasture, no pun intended. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think for my husband too, he just didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. I think I learned during that time how much I appreciated my job. Why? Just because my personal life was such a disaster, Oh, it was like a refuge for you. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, I do. I really love what I do and the people that I work with. I think also... To be honest, I didn't think my husband was going to go back to being a lawyer because he really didn't want to. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to work anyway. But I also realized I really love what I do. And it was nice for me to I don't know how I could have gotten through that time without work, honestly.
1: So when you say survival mode, part of what maybe you mean is that like you buried yourself in your job and it gave you control that you otherwise probably couldn't and you're really good at your job. So you know, okay, at least I can do something that I can control that gives me back what I'm putting into it.
0: I never really thought about it that way, but that sounds right.
1: Yeah, super interesting. So it's funny because I ask you about the like, how do you take two kids to six basketball games? (laughs) You know, when I hear you say this, two kids to six basketball games, I just imagine that that's a pretty solid foundation that was forged through the fire. Yeah. That is like, okay, big deal.
0: I think that's true about everything that's happened in my life since then. And so people always say I never seem stressed out. Mm. And I think it's because it's just perspective. That time was really stressful. This other thing, is doable.
1: Yeah, I guess the main question that I have is, how did you find Square and why did you ultimately end up going?
0: Great question. I found Square through Jackie Reese's. I don't know if you talked to her in your work, but she's who I co-authored the book with. So we were at Yahoo together. She went to Square. I interviewed with Square. I fell in love with Square when I went there, just what they were doing. I felt really excited. I thought all the people were just so smart and I was so excited to work there. They offered me a job and I ultimately turned it down because it just wasn't the right job for me. And it was probably one of the most like heartbreaking decisions was to say no to Square. But I said, I love the company. I wanna come there but this is not the right job. And I feel like I've worked too hard to get to where I am to take this far of a step back just to get my foot in the door. But if something else comes up, please call me. And so then I decided to leave Yahoo, started consulting and Square called me maybe a year later and said, okay, we have the job for you.
1: And the job was a step up from what the job originally was. Yeah,
0: and I was like, I'm in. Super cool. Yeah.
1: Is it true that Square does this thing where when you're leaving, I don't know if it's for the interns or not, but everybody gets one request or wish. Do you know what I'm talking about? My buddy was telling me last night, because he worked at Square for a while. I think he interned there a long time ago. Okay. And he said that everybody gets one wish at the end of their internship, I think it is. And they do them, generally speaking. like You can't ask Jack to verify you on Twitter, which a lot of people did. Yeah. But he asked Jack, at the time, Caviar, which is a food delivery service, was owned by Square. Yeah. He asked Jack to retweet his Caviar code, and Jack did it. He was eating free for a long time. Did you, not, did you know
0: that? I did not know that.
1: Really random. Kind of cool. That's really cool. I don't like the idea of celebrating people on the way out. Not my style, but I get it for interns. Yeah. Anyway, so you get to Square, which now is called Block. You did what Google did similarly, which is Alphabet, parent company, Block, parent company, a bunch of divisions within that.
0: Fair, yes. Right? Yes.
1: I'm not saying you're copying Google, but I'm saying you is a similar structure. Yes. So different BU's within it. Yes. Why'd you do it that way?
0: So it was been great for us, to be honest. So I'm still work on the Square business unit. And so if you ask me, I would say I work for Square, not Block. And Square was the only business unit within the parent company that had to share their brand identity with the parent company. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for us, it was this idea that we have a lot of different business units and Jack sees Block as an ecosystem of startups. And we wanted to own the Square brand within the Square business unit. And so it was just this idea that we can create the separation and Block is a better brand and name for all that that the company will become. And so it was great.
1: Does it feel different?
0: No, it doesn't feel any different the so only I would say the difference for me on the square side is I'm excited, really excited about the fact that I don't have to run things through the corporate team right. that we want to do. You have
1: autonomy. Yeah. We used to when I was at Palo Alto Networks, we used to call them speedboats, which is a name for startups that can go fast. Yeah. That don't have to go to the parent company every time they need something and they have autonomous decision-making authority to just get things done to move faster. Because what you're really trying to combat is as the company gets bigger yeah. so quickly, it slows down. Yeah. So if you can subdivide it, you can create some speed.
0: I would say that's true for how Square has always operated, but there were a few things that were still tied into the corporate entity, and so that just really gave us that separation. And I think if you think about the other business units in Square, Cash App has a really unique brand identity. And we said, we want to evolve Square's brand identity. And we can't do that if we're also Square, Inc. And when we want to tweet about something from Square, we also have to run it by our investor relations team in the past because they also need to send all of their corporate and IR tweets through the Square handle. And now we have that separation. So it's been great for us.
1: In 30 seconds or less, what does Square do?
0: Square is a company that has technology solutions, so software, hardware, that enable businesses of all types and sizes to run and grow and operate.
1: Thank you for telling me what the actual product is rather than telling me the magical outcome of the products. So this company Square is incredible. Khosla was the Series A Sequoia was the B, we were the C. This thing just, it, it, such a cool company. It IPO'd in November of 2015. During the heyday, heyday being ugh, like the craziest market we've ever seen, the company was at $150 billion valuation. Today, it is valued at around $60 billion. Not a little company. Like this is a serious, serious business. Yep. When you reflect back on working for this company, did you have any idea what you were walking into this thing in the time that you joined to now four years later has become a goliath of a company do you ever just sit back and think about like man how cool is this
0: yes it's the best job i've ever had but no i had no idea what i was walking into and there's still so much for us to go and do but it's been the most amazing experience of my career hands down
1: What's the lowest point that you've had at the company?
0: Probably in my first year. I think that I came to Square and there was movement in the first year. I came in leading that global growth strategy team, which was an interesting role across marketing strategy and sales strategy and sales ops, a bunch of stuff. I always like to take jobs, something I know, something I don't know how to do. And I thought, well, I don't really know how to do any of the sales ops stuff but ultimately I wanted to run marketing and I told my boss at the time I'm coming here this is where I want to go to let's work together to get there and in my first year he moved someone in to run the marketing execution but I still had marketing strategy that was a low point for me I was really disappointed but I said okay I'm open to seeing how this goes and at the end of the day it didn't work out with that person and within that next year I was running the team
1: I remember my first time experiencing Square in the real world. I was on Venice Beach and I wanted a soda or something. And I was super bummed because I had just gone on a run and I was exhausted and dehydrated and all I wanted was a drink. And it was like a guy with a cooler on the side of the beach, I pulled out my wallet and I'm like, damn it, I'm sorry, I do not bring cash, I only have credit cards. Oh no problem. Pops this thing into the phone. And I look at it and I'm like, what is that? You know, it's like, just give me your card, he gives me my card, swipes it, and I was like, oh my God, this thing's gonna change the world. This is incredible. Yeah. This guy doesn't even have a legal business, he's a cooler on the side of the beach and he's taking my credit card. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's so special. It is. I was thinking about this last night. What is it about small business stories? that galvanize us so much. You know, I remember the early days of Visa and they still do. The commercials of the credit card companies are always through small business. So are yours. Yeah. Shark Tank. It's like the most popular show we've ever had. What is it that we love so much about the small business story?
0: It's probably the resilience and the passion. It's so hard to run your own business so hard. I know when I ran my business, everyone said, oh, your biggest problem is going to be finding clients. That was not true. My biggest problem was I didn't know where to begin with setting up an LLC, a bank account. I didn't know how to get paid. All of these things that Square helps businesses with. So I would say, Small business owners are so passionate about what they do and they are the most resilient and inspiring people. You see, I think if you think about COVID and all of the hurdles that have been thrown their way, they're passionate and they are just trying to make it work every day. And people love that.
1: It's kind of the American dream, right? There's nothing that gets me going more than just thinking about small businesses. I don't know why.
0: I also think it's part of all of our communities, right? I mean, you grew up in Los Altos, Los Altos downtown. You want those businesses to succeed. If they're not there, then you don't have a town. And so I think more than ever during the pandemic, people really wanted their communities to stay afloat. And they really thought about how can they help the businesses in their community because everybody wants to have that place in their town.
1: I think there's something also very personal about supporting that business because you know who you're supporting. There's a face to the business. Usually in a small business, it's the owner that's helping you. And you know their family. Like there's something very intimate about a small business that I think gives me the warm and fuzzies.
0: Yeah, and they're like the underdogs, right? There's these little boutique stores and restaurants and you want them to win.
1: It's like when I walk by a Girl Scout Hook, line, and sinker, I cannot not buy everything that she has. I just can't help myself. I know that she's on a leaderboard. Because you like
0: the cookies, it's come on.
1: Absolutely. I'm trying to make myself sound like a saint over here. Okay, speaking of, I have your book right here, Self-Made Boss. I have it annotated. thought that was pretty cool. Yes, good job. Uh, there is, in the back, I have a pre-copy, and I know how I, that I have a pre-copy because... The uh, about the author section says text needed. So (laughs) I I assume the book is coming soon.
0: Yeah. Book is coming out March 29th.
1: It is a dozen or so short chapters that serve as a guide to becoming your own boss and running your own business. And it's through the lens of small business owners talking about things like getting funding, marketing, HR, finance, legal. Right. Yep. And then I think each of these chapters, you and your co-author, Jackie, summarize some of the lessons that are learned.
0: Yeah. Okay. At the end, well, we summarize the lessons that are learned and we also wanted to give people reading the book things that they could start to think about and take away. So it didn't just feel like, okay, I read all this stuff and I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So the idea was at the end of every chapter, start to actually think about what this means to you and put some context around some of the insights.
1: Is it true that one in five businesses do not last 12 months? Yes. That's a high number, isn't it? Yeah. That blew my mind. I didn't even know how to react to that. It's like being a bagel shop in New York City. Like, you sure you want to be a bagel shop in New York City?
0: But there's also so many new businesses getting started every year. And I think now more than ever, I think at the end of 2020, there was like 4 million new businesses that were started. So if you think about the great resignation and people really wanting to go do something that they're really passionate about, I mean, I think we're seeing that more than ever.
1: What inspired you to write it besides the fact that you work at Square?
0: Well, working at Square is a big part of it because both Jackie and I talked to small business owners all the time Yeah, and we heard the same things all the time, which is the things that people were struggling with. There were very similar themes. They felt alone. They didn't have anywhere that they could go and get the information. Mm-hmm. And so... There's books in business school, but they're not really designed for small business owners. And then the other insight is, small business owners are so smart. They've already learned all these lessons. Like, what if we could put it all together, all the things that people have learned, and share it so that the people who are getting started don't have to keep reinventing the wheel, that they have some place that they could go to hear about some of these things. And there was really nothing else that was
1: like it that existed. How did you find the businesses?
0: A couple different ways. A lot of them are just businesses that Jackie and I know. I mean, my dad is in the book. Two of my college roommates are in the book. The dentist story. Yeah, the dentist story is my yeah. dad. And then a lot of them in Square, we talk to businesses all the time and we cast businesses in a lot of our commercials and we do podcasts at Square as well. And so I knew a lot of business owners just from Square and we knew people with these incredible stories. And then during the pandemic, I talked to business owners all the time, constantly.
1: I heard you have a podcast. I've heard you had two podcasts and the ads in your podcast are interviews with small businesses. Is that right?
0: We don't do ads in our podcast.
1: Ads, ads in air quotes. Like the people that you- Yeah,
0: we put our businesses in the yeah. podcast, yeah. We put our businesses in our ads too. Super cool. Yeah, we always try to use business owners at Square Mm-hmm. To tell their stories and just through their voice is so much more meaningful than through our voice.
1: We love a good small business story. Yeah. What was one thing after writing a book that you were surprised to learn?
0: It's so much work. I think that, <laughs> yeah. not that I didn't expect that, but I thought writing the book, like doing the interviews, writing the book, and editing would be the hard part. And now that we're in the final stretches, it's the promotions and the marketing of the book, which shouldn't be that surprising to me, but it's very different than the marketing that I do in my job. That's the part that's taking a lot of time. It's hard.
1: It's really hard.
0: Yeah, really hard.
1: The last 10% is extraordinarily hard. Yeah. Yeah, would you write another one?
0: I don't know yet, maybe. We'll see how this one goes. See how this one
1: lands? (laughs) Yeah, okay. I've heard that you send a weekly marketing email, Mm -hmm. and what I found interesting about that is that you include a personal story every week, right? Yeah. Why do you do that
0: well I started during the pandemic and i thought there's all these people that were hiring and they don't really know me and they only see me through a screen and i thought i could share something that's going on in my life and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's something that's hard and people always write back and say thank you so much for sharing like this really resonated with me and the fact that you're talking about something that's going on in your life that's hard or that's funny makes me feel like I'm connected to you and I know you.
1: Like what? Give me an example.
0: So when we moved from California to New York, we drove in an RV across the country with my two teenage boys and two dogs. And one of them, I talked about just what the trip was like, because it was great, but it was also really intense and emotional and I gave an example of, we had one day, I think we were driving through Wyoming. It was a really long day. We saw two really bad car accidents. Some of the places that we stayed along the way were beautiful and lovely, and some were on the side of a highway. So this was a night. We're on the side of the highway. I felt really stressed about just all the things that we had seen that day, and I just told the story of how I <laughs> sat outside in the parking lot, poured my California Chardonnay into a red Solo <laughs> cup, and just cried. Are kidding me? no and just cried at the table and thought, what am I doing with my life? I live in a parking lot. <laughs> and and I think it really made people laugh, but I always just, a couple of weeks ago, I included a in story of, I was going to yoga class in the morning and I couldn't find my yoga mat bag. And so it's really early in the morning. I have my mat, my coffee, my bag with my block, my car key, and obviously I just have too much stuff in my hands. And so I accidentally set off my car alarm. Then I got flustered and dropped my car key, which rolled underneath my car. (laughs) And... My car, luckily, is like a Jeep, and so it has really big tires, so I have to crawl under my car on the driveway because it's 7 o'clock in the morning and my alarm is blaring, and then everybody sent me back recommendations like, get this yoga bag or get this yoga tie, and so I think part of it is to share, like, I'm a human, stuff happens to me too, and I'm never afraid to tell a funny story at my expense because I think it just helps people feel like they can be them and I think they have one perception of me and who I am and when I share the things that are hard about my life or just funny things like the yoga mat story, I think it just helps people feel like, oh, like she's real and she has the same kind of things that we deal with in our lives.
1: I had uh, Emily Troy from Coinbase Mm -hmm. on the podcast. Do you know who that is? Uh She's the COO of Coinbase and super sharp. And she was telling a story about how a lot of the feedback that she would get is that she was very unapproachable. And so she also sends a regularly cadenced email. I think it was monthly, maybe weekly. And one email that she sent, she started it with a very, very personal story about her father. And like her team cried, I think to the whole company, like people cried. She said she's never had such a positive response to anything she's done professionally And when you're vulnerable like that, it just gives others the permission to feel the same way. Yeah. And yeah, we're all going through a bunch of shit all the time. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true. And it takes a lot of time every week to write that email. But I feel like I always have something to share. And sometimes it's just like silly stuff. And sometimes it's stuff that's hard. And I do think people really appreciate it, even just the yoga mat story and other stories where people are like you made me laugh out loud on a friday afternoon so thank you
1: (laughs) i've heard a couple more things about you here so one and this doesn't surprise me at all having sat down with you now but you're very kind however very direct is the characterization that i would put on uh, how i've understood lauren okay and i want to share a couple stories and just get your reaction to to
0: okay oh god
1: (laughs) (laughs) so one is that a few years ago at Square, is time to plan for the following year, build a budget, a strategy, etc. cetera. how your team do it? And you thought that their entire process was wrong. And so you went ahead and created a new one, got buy-in from the team, presented it, management loved it, and adopted that. The person that was relaying this story to me says, who does that? <laughs> That's story number one. Number two... Similar. My team of analysts was working with our data science team and presented results to Lauren about some project that we were doing. You know where I'm going with this? are no. uh, You don't. Know, good. And she looked at the project's results and said, I think X is wrong and I think Y is wrong. And the team pushed back on her on why they thought the original data was correct. She, being kind, walked away and didn't say anything. Five days later, they came back and they were like, you were right. Then, taking that a step further, another five days later, there was another like three things that you were like, I know, but there's still a few more things. They pushed back again, came back to you again, and they were like, you were right. Do you know about those stories?
0: Yes, that did happen recently. It was over a longer period of time where I was like, this isn't right, there's something that's wrong, and everyone is defending it, insisting, and I said, okay, I still think, There's something that's wrong here. And then they were all like, oh, she's right again.
1: (laughs) In your gut, knowing that this was something was wrong. Why didn't you address it right there?
0: I did address it. But I think at the time, so I'm having a conversation. you know you
1: could go fix it. You know you can parachute right in there and start going into problem solving mode.
0: Yes and no, because I'm not a data scientist. So I don't know how to write models and do the things that they do but I understand the business implication of the models and I understand all the inputs and there's a lot of other signals that I look at when I'm thinking about what's happening in our business. And so I can't rewrite their models, but I know when something feels off. And so I insisted that I thought something felt off, but I couldn't have actually gone to fix it myself because I can't do the work that they do. And sometimes I think you have to trust people. I was like, okay, this is still how I feel. and eventually they look at it again and they're like, yeah, there's something we missed and something was wrong. And so they got there.
1: So funny. I've heard you say, and I thought this was very insightful, that the process of getting started with Square is one of the earliest and best innovations that the company has ever done. Can you expand on that?
0: Yeah. This has to do with what you're talking about, which is when you bought the soda that day. So the early process for Square was to make it as easy to onboard as a business owner and start taking credit card payments as it was to set up an Instagram account. Obviously, there's a lot of competitors in the space, but at the time, the idea that you could self-onboard your business and start taking credit card payments as quickly as you could set up an Instagram or any kind of social media account was just something that was a completely novel new idea. That just broke down the barriers for small businesses everywhere to be able to never miss a sale.
1: As a marketer, how much did you invest in the idea of how easy it is for small businesses to get started? Because I suspect once they do it, it's like, of course it's on.
0: In the early days of Square, it was all about free because the credit card reader was free and easy, free and easy. I would say now... We have such a robust offering of tools and we serve businesses of all sizes. I mean, we're in SoFi Stadium running all of their point of sales there. So for us now, it's less about free and easy. I think that's something that a lot of people know us for already because that was really important in our early days. But now it's more about the fact that we make really complex things easy for business owners. So you can literally run your entire business using our tools. And if you think about what businesses have weathered in the last couple of years, especially recently with Omicron, staffing issues and shortages. And so businesses that allow technology to automate part of what they're doing are in a much better position than those that have been just more resistant to a tech forward approach. And just a couple of examples. But if you're a restaurant owner and you have QR codes for menus and the ability to order from your QR code and you're short on wait staff, which almost every restaurant was during December and January, you now are able to still take orders and still run your business. If you've automated your payroll from your point of sale, which you can do with Square, then you don't need to hire someone who's doing that in your back office. And so- Now for us, it's really about helping businesses understand that we have all of these tools, they work together, and they're really there to make it easy for you to do complicated things, to run your business so that you have time to focus on whatever it is that you either want to go do next, whether it's just expansion or whether it's spend more time with your family.
1: You mentioned competition earlier. For a very long time, there was no competition at Square or very, very minimal. Yeah. I suspect that was the case even for the last few years when you've been at the company, right?
0: No, we've had competition. In earnest? Yes, we have competition in every single one of our products. I think the way that we're different is that we're marketing our entire ecosystem of solutions. But if you think about the spaces that we play in, there's a competitor, a competitive product for every single one of our products.
1: I don't disagree with you. Maybe the point that I'm making is, in some way, isn't it nice to have competition? This idea that you're just kind of out in the pastures without someone else to push you i don't know i mean yahoo had competition it didn't work out very good for them ultimately so there's both sides yeah. of this but in some ways i think it's hard like as a venture firm you know if it's just us who's pushing us who's pushing us to be great and i guess there's the obvious answer of oh well you don't need anyone to push you you can push yourself okay fine but it's not always how business works what do you think
0: I agree with you, but I don't feel that since I've been at Square, I never felt in my almost five years there that we didn't have competition. But I do agree with you that the competition definitely keeps you on your toes. Like When I got to Square, and I'm not sure who told you the story about the planning process, but that was a big push in the beginning, which was really sending a manifesto to the entire executive team on why I thought the planning process that the entire company used was not the right way to do it, and I thought we were not really allowing marketing to drive the growth that it could potentially drive for the business, so this was hard. I got a lot of no's before we made some changes. We did ultimately make a lot of changes, but it's not the kind of thing where everyone's like, oh, great idea, yes, let's make all those changes today.
1: What did you do? You saw this, walk me through the process. How did that unfold?
0: So my first year at Square, the planning process started a couple months after I was there. So I would say the first year was just an observation year. And I was like, huh, this is how they do this here. This seems, what is this? The planning process, which is is basically deciding what products will be prioritized and how much marketing budget and what the goals will be from that spend will be in the given year. And I think in the first year, the process was go through everything and then decide marketing budget. But it wasn't, based off of what was being greenlit from a product perspective. So I think in my first year there, we launched 18 new products on a flat marketing budget. So that was sort of the precipice for me saying, hey, something's broken in our process. When we're deciding to greenlight products, we should also decide what marketing support will go with those products. Because We shouldn't just be putting products out into the world if we're not going to market them because we're not really setting them up for success that way. And so we shouldn't say, okay, there's a product process and marketing. Here's what you're going to do. They need to be connected.
1: Hmm. Okay. Then what?
0: So then I wrote the manifesto. What's the manifesto? It was just saying all the ways that I thought we could improve our planning process, which went to Jack and the entire executive team. In an email. In an email. Yeah. And it was debated for a while.
1: How long did you spend on that email?
0: I don't remember. It wasn't that complicated, honestly, because in my mind, I was like, we could just make this so much better. This is what we should do. And it seemed really simple to me. Yeah. And so then it was an iterative process. And every year, I would say one of the best things about Square is that we always learn and evolve. And so we made some changes and then we made some more changes. And in that process of that next year, I also said, I think you should give marketing a lot more money. And the answer was no. But still, I said, okay, plan B is use the money that you've given us in a completely different way. And that's what we did. And then we got a lot more money.
1: Did you look at your husband before he sent that email like, oh my God, this is going to jack. What am I doing? This is crazy, I just started here.
0: So I think that one of the things my husband would say is that you send things and you make decisions really quickly and you don't overthink them. And so, no, I didn't. I probably should have. And I think he's the opposite. And he always says, you just do these things and say these things. And I don't think you're really thinking about them. And I said, well, I did really think about them, but I didn't want to overthink it. It just felt right.
1: I have heard you have strength in your conviction and moving the business forward, even when it's really hard. Yes. No surprise. Okay. A couple of things. One, You've also said in the past that you and your team, you share ads or campaigns together that you really love from yeah. other companies. Yeah. Give me an example. What's an ad or something that you've seen or that you all shared that you really admire?
0: I think a lot of stuff Nike does we really admire from a brand perspective in my opinion they have earned the right to show up in places without having to explain what role they play there. And so I I think about that mostly as it relates to social causes. And they've done some things with showing people failing or whether it's the ad that they ran with pregnant women in it. And I think for my team, there's often ideas about where Square could show up. And I always say, we will earn the right. We haven't earned it yet. We can't just show up there because people don't understand what role we play in that conversation. And so that's one thing that I really admire about Nike is that they've earned the right and people understand why they're there.
1: When you say show up somewhere, you're saying like, look, we can be brave and audacious in the goals that we have, but we also can't be tone deaf. I need to understand that the right time for the right place is the right messaging.
0: Yes, and as there have been many cultural moments or things that are happening in the world.
1: You don't need to seize every single one of them.
0: We don't. I mean, I think some of them we do have a place in. Obviously, when COVID hit and the pandemic and it's small businesses, and I saw some brands having messages and I'm like, you don't belong to saying something in this time to people. You don't really play a role there. And I think for us, we did, but we still chose not to say Anything that was one of our first decisions with the pandemic was we don't wanna put an ad on TV that says, hey, small businesses, we're all in this together. For business owners, that means nothing to them, right? They are trying to figure out how are they gonna survive being closed? And so what we did instead was we took our marketing budget and used it to give our customers refunds for their SaaS fees during that time. And we thought that's a lot more meaningful than putting an ad on TV that says, hey, we're all in this together.
1: Super cool. Self-made boss comes out in a few weeks. I can't wait to see what you do next. And I'll tell you, the only question that pretty much everybody asked me to ask you, which I'm not going to ask you, but I can't wait to see, is what's she going to do next? (laughs) Because I'm going to get the corporate spiel of, well, I love my job, and I'm really happy here, and I'm not thinking about what I'm going to do next. So not going to ask the question, but we're all excited. In the meantime, this book's coming out in a few weeks. I end all these the same way. What does the word grit mean to you?
0: It means persistence, resilience, and the willingness to power through hard things.
1: If someone hears this, is inspired, wants to come work with you, are you hiring? Yes. I assume you're hiring everywhere.
0: We are hiring everywhere. We have over 50 roles. If you want to check out any of them, go to squareup.com careers, and you can see them. If you have questions, hit me up on LinkedIn.
1: Any specific jobs that come to mind right now that you're very, very excited to fill?
0: We are hiring a new head of creative for our marketing team. That's a really big one.
1: That's a cool job.
0: It's an amazing job.
1: They should reach out to you directly. Yep. Awesome. Lauren, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at KleinerPerkins.com.